0: This is How to Read, Brief Conversations with Brilliant Minds. How to Read is a series of brief conversations with literary scholars. I'm Milan, and in each episode, I sit down for a cup of tea with a different scholar, and we talk through their current research.
1: And I'm Jess, the producer of How to Read. Today, we're talking to Paul Saint-Amour, an English professor who studies 19th and 20th century novels. We hope you enjoy the conversation. And now, back to Milan.
0: What happens when we apply today's ideas about social networks back onto literature of the past? It's easy to think of these networks as a new feature of 21st century life, but English professor Paul Saint-Amour argues that earlier novels also had a profound understanding of these issues. Paul Sincher-Moore, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much. We're going to talk today about social networks. Mm. And my first question is, how does that term apply to a literary work?
2: Mm -hmm. It's a a good place to start. Um, One way to think about it would be that an app like Facebook formalizes Mm -hmm. ways of communicating that have existed for a long time in more informal ways, right? Mm -hmm. So that the metaphor of following or friending is one that's sort of rooted in long-term practices that don't require digital infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And so to take that idea of a social network and walk it back to a moment before (laughs) Facebook is in a way to ask how people were thinking and writing about social networks before they were sort of formalized. Mm -hmm. And in the case of the major example that I am hoping we can talk about today, Mm -hmm. which is George Eliot's novel, Middlemarch, from the 1870s. You know, if you take the idea of a social network back to that novel as a question, Mm -hmm. what you find is that she's very interested in uh, how information travels.
0: So can you just sort of, for for listeners that don't know Middlemarch, kind of tell us what that novel is about and at least, like, what's important to understand about it for this topic of social networks.
2: Sure. Uh, George Eliot's Middlemarch is um, a novel that she wrote in the early 1870s, but that is set in the early 1830s. Mm-hmm. And its main character is a young woman named Dorothea Brooke. And it's a story of her marriage to an older man who is a scholar, mm-hmm. Mr. Casaubon, mm-hmm. who is... Uh, cranky and egocentric and needy and mm-hmm. ambitious mm. and he dies and as he is ailing she has begun to become closer to Kasabin's young nephew Will Ladislaw who's her mm-hmm. contemporary mm-hmm. and Kasabin sees this bond beginning to form and adds a codicil to his will saying
0: a codicil?
2: a codicil is a sort of an addendum to a will saying that If after his death, Dorothea, his widow, should marry his nephew, Will Ladislaw, then Mm -hmm. she will be denied access to his, Kasabin's, fortune. So he's from beyond the grave Mm -hmm. preventing her from remarrying. Um, And to tell the story that way makes it sound as if there are three characters, Mm -hmm. but in fact Middlemarch is a four-volume novel many hundreds of pages long with dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of minor characters.
0: I'm just going to see if this tea is starting to look brewed. Uh, Let's check. Um, Maybe a little pale still. What do you think? I would say that. Maybe let it go a couple more minutes. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier this issue of how information circulates. Mm -hmm. Um, Is it partly circulating through these other minor characters exactly yeah. yeah so how can you give an example of how that operates
2: i can and um first i want to just share with you a, a couple of sentences that i think set this up okay great. pretty well and yeah. this is um from chapter 59 mm-hmm. uh, in in middle march and it, the chapter begins news is often dispersed as thoughtlessly and effectively as that pollen which the bees carry off having no idea how powdery they are when they are buzzing in search of their particular nectar. That's lovely. Yeah. <laughs> amazing, right? Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I'm drawn to this partly because my members of my family are urban beekeepers, but oh, wow, also amazing. <laughs> because these characters, you know, these bees don't know how mm. powdery they are, right? How mm. how bogged down their little bee legs are with the pollen of gossip. Yeah. They're just like going around and inadvertently they are pollinating mm. the sort of open flowers of their community with gossip, with information. Yeah. And the kind of crucial bit of information here that is transmitted mm. is the news of this codicil, this addendum to Mr. Casabán's will. Mhm. So his his widow learns when his will is read that mm-hmm. her now-dead husband has put yeah. this condition on her inheriting his fortune. Mm-hmm. But Will Ladislaw does not know. Okay. Now, you'd think that that information would travel rapidly to Will from Dorothea. But, of course, it's very difficult to tell someone in, in whom you have <laughs> a kind of complicated <laughs> yeah. investment. You know, by the way... It, even should you have feelings toward me and even should I reciprocate them, yeah. if we were to act on them, it would trigger this codicil in my dead husband's will such that we would be deprived of his fortune. Like, yeah. What's the context in which in 1831 you can say that to a person or even maybe now? Yeah. And should I mean, should wills have codicils like, like
0: this? We haven't yet said we're in love, but <laughs> <laughs> I can't marry you, just FYI. <laughs> right, <Yeah. exactly. laughs>
2: so that is an example of a kind of strong... Social tie okay right? yeah,
0: between and Dorothea, between Dorothea and will,
2: and will mm-hmm. that is actually an impediment to the transmission of this news mm. and what Elliot then does is to trace the circuitous path that this news follows from one of Mr. Kasabin's servants, to Dorothea's servant, to a servant in yet another household, Mm -hmm. to the sister and mother of the clergyman, who's the sort of head of that household, Mm -hmm. to a manufacturer's son from the town, Mm -hmm. to his sister, then to Will Ladislaw, who is a visitor in that sister's house. So that news changes hands something like eight or nine times Mm. by way of weaker social ties before it Mm. hops this intimate distance between
0: these two people who can't talk about it. So you've used the terms strong and weak social ties, and what do you mean by those terms? Those are terms that um,
2: I get from a sociologist named Mark Granovetter, who published a famous article in the 1970s in which he talked about strong and weak social ties mm-hmm. strong social ties so this is in real life this, this is isn't in real action so- yes okay. this is not a sociologist in Middlemarch. got it um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean it's such a massive novel that could be a sociologist in there, there should be <laughs> uh, and Granovetter made a distinction between strong social ties which are those between intimates whether mm-hmm. family members or other kind of strong primary social bonds and weaker social ties which are more incidental less intimate mm-hmm. and one of the so arguments that's like of
0: this acquaintances people the leave.
2: people you see in the elevator mm-hmm. people you run into at the line at the local post office okay. and the one of the key arguments in this essay is that information travels both more rapidly and more widely Mm. by way of weak social ties than Mm. by way of strong ones, which would seem sort of counterintuitive. You think of intimates as sharing everything, Mm. sharing information. Mm. But the problem with that hypothesis is that people who are very close to one another will tend to have very closely overlapping social webs or networks. And so that bit of news doesn't move that far or that fast. Yeah. Whereas if you tell the person in the elevator mm. and that person has an almost completely non-overlapping social world with your own, mm. suddenly that bit of news has caught fire mm. um, in a dry area of Tinder that is completely separate from your own already burned over fuel supply <laughs> right in, your, <laughs> in your social network. And in a way, I guess I do want to sort of suggest that Middlemarch is intuiting that argument, Mm. you know, a hundred years before Granovetter actually
0: like sits down and hammers it out. Mm -hmm. All right. I'm going to see, I think this tea is probably now all set. If it's not, it's probably not going to get that much stronger. Actually, that looks fine.
2: That looks good. Okay.
0: Um.
2: And you know, this, I think it's interesting in its own right, but I think it also leads us back to some of the, really central ethical questions at the heart of a book like Middlemarch. Mm. The the narrator of that novel is asking readers again and again to remember that people that you encounter every day whose names you may not even know are the centers of their own life experiences in mm. which you also feature, you, you reciprocally feature as a, as a minor figure if yeah. you feature at all. Yeah. And I think that one of the ways that she does it is by populating her books with these characters of whom you catch tantalizing glimpses and who you're really invited to imaginatively place at the center of another novel, to imagine a middle march that is focused on um, the servant tantrip or mm-hmm. uh, on Mrs. Fairbrother instead of on Dorothea Brooke and mm. Will Ladislaw. And in a way, what I'm talking about is a kind of fan fiction <laughs> criticism approach in the sense that it's asking us, to Write extra tarry in that stories. world, yeah, and to sort of imagine it otherwise. yeah, um, To imagine what other kinds of narrative trails you could take through that world. Yeah. I guess I would add one thing, mm-hmm. which is that novels in different periods conceive of their relationship to the world really differently. And mm-hmm. right now I'm teaching Joyce's Ulysses, and okay. I've been bringing some of these same questions to bear on that book mm. with really really different results. Yeah. Um, okay,
0: so tell us what are the kind of major differences between Ulysses and Middlemarch? <laughs> or okay, let's let's How long do you have? Right, let's <laughs> let's simplify. It. So, what are the kind of key features of the social network in Ulysses? In some ways,
2: they they bear a family resemblance to those in Middlemarch in the sense that it is also a long novel mm-hmm. set in one place and very interested in the ways that members of families, but also members of looser kinship communities Mm -hmm. interact, share information, trade opinions, lend each other money. Mm -hmm. But Ulysses, in a way that Middlemarch is not, Mm -hmm. is interested in putting distortive lenses between us and, um, let's say, the realist novel of the 19th century. So uh, instead of... You know, writing a whole novel with a an omniscient narrator, mm. Ulysses kind of changes the rules of engagement with every episode. So, in one episode, mm-hmm. you might have that narrator somewhat like a George Eliot narrator. In another, you'll have. He just sort a
0: of looks f- over everything and knows everything about all the characters. Sure.
2: Yeah. Right. And sort of describes their motions through the world. And in another mm-hmm. chapter, you might have a first person narrator who, who, whose name you're not given. Mm-hmm. In another,. You have an episode written in the form of a play. Um, so that novel is taking something like Eliot's thought experiment about information and in communities mm. and folding it in on itself to think about the kind of information a novel is and the,
0: the different filters that can be put on mm. that information. And um, you as a reader also then being part of this information network. For sure. Yeah, right? yeah.
2: yeah, and there's there are a few quite chilling examples of that uh-huh. where there's a there's an episode which is sort of partly narrated by a first-person narrator, again, whose name you don't know. But mm. as you read this episode and you begin to locate this character in relation to other figures whom you've already met, it mm. becomes fairly apparent that he is a police informant talking to a policeman. Okay. In this case... You know a member of uh what would be the occupying police force of the British Empire in Dublin, because mm. in nineteen o four when Ulysses is set, Dublin is the capital of an of an occupied colony, mm. so you as a reader are getting addressed as if you were a member of the sort of espiocracy right the sort of spy <laughs> network that wow, runs okay. this colony, yeah, and you know if you are used to being a kind of disembodied reader of 19th century novels that don't sort of tell you where you are or who you are in the world of the fiction Mm. and just sort of enjoying it the way a spectator enjoys a spectacle yeah suddenly you're being addressed and forcibly channeled into Mm. a particular position yeah that you know, makes you ask a different set of questions about the relationship between reading and power, for instance, mm. reading and surveillance, mm. reading and occupation. Mm. Um, that can be quite disquieting in a way that uh, I think is n- not so common in, in 19th century novels. Yeah, you
0: know? yeah. So if you could be a part of any novel's social network, which would it be? wow and what would your position within it be
2: right well since I've been talking so much about Middlemarch and tipped my hand that it's a novel that I love and love to sort of think and feel with yeah I would go ahead and say that book although I worry <laughs> that my position in it would be the dry as dust, Kasaman. <laughs> the, the scholar. The, yes, the yeah. pale scholar whose ambition of writing the, the key to all mythologies will never be realized. I guess mm. I, you know, I would maybe want to imagine a different place for myself. Mm. Um, I think I would want to be the beekeeper. Oh. in middle march i didn't even know there was a
0: beekeeper that's one.
2: <laughs> well there is isn't. now there is but maybe the beekeeper in Middlemarch is something like the publican at the local pub right yeah. who's who's watching the bees laden with the pollen of gossip taking mm. off and landing in the pub mm. and exchanging that pollen with one another
0: that's lovely paul saint thank you very much
2: thanks very much milan
0: that was paul saint professor in the English department at the University of Pennsylvania.
1: That's it for this episode. For links to books mentioned in our discussion, plus further reading, visit our website, howtoreadpodcast.com. You can also listen to a bonus clip of Paul St. Amour explaining how he turned Middlemarch into a role-playing game for his students.
0: To hear about our latest episodes and news, follow us on Twitter and Facebook, at How to Read Now.
1: How to Read is produced by...
0: Me, Milan Talunen,
1: And by me, Jess Engerbretson. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear. Special thanks to Columbia University for its support, and thank you for listening.